Could you uh, open up to Luke chapter 2? We're going to be looking at the end of that chapter. So we're going to look at verses 39 to 52 of Luke chapter 2. If you could open up to that. I want to begin with the story about a man named Kyle. Kyle stopped going to church a few years ago. He hasn't abandoned his faith in Jesus, nor has he stopped telling his friends about the gospel. It is just that the Sunday morning experience no longer works for Kyle. He is done with the church. And he says he's done with institutional religion. Here's what he writes. He says, you know, says Kyle, the places where I have seen God move the most were in places like on a river while fly fishing or backpacking with a group of teens or sitting at a pub with a group of guys talking about life. Kyle's not alone. According to both scholars and pollsters, the religious landscape in America has been simmering with change over the last 10 years. While spirituality is flourishing, fewer people affiliate themselves with a particular denomination or religion. There is a new phenomenon, too, taking place in Christendom. It is called the Duns, D-O-N-E-S, a group of people that call themselves the Duns. Researchers say roughly 30 million former churchgoers still maintain their faith, but they are no longer following Jesus in traditional church settings. So the Duns are, according to pollsters, sociologists, a group of people who still claim traditional faith in Christ, but they're just done with the whole institution called church. They would rather go be with people more like them, out fly fishing, or even non-Christians at a baseball game than hang out on a stuffy Sunday morning with church people. Why? There's a lot of, I read about three different articles that condensed them down to five reasons. The first one is people are just tired of being lectured to. They're tired of sitting there being lectured to, especially when they don't think the pastor is that deep or they're, we're not being fed. They just don't want to be lectured to. Second reason, people want to participate. One person said, I am tired of the old plop, pray, and pay routine. I've given enough time doing that, plopping on the pews, praying during worship, and then paying, and then we're done. Paid my time, officer, I'm out. Third reason is people want more openness to doctrine and belief. It's, they would say it's arrogant to think we as an individual congregation or denomination have all the truth, so we need to go elsewhere to find more truth. The fourth one People are just tired of authoritarian structures, top-down rulership and being underneath the authority. And then the fifth reason is church, to some people, seems more about just maintaining a tradition, just keeping the doors open and really fostering connection with the living God. Those are the five reasons pollsters or researchers would say. I think there's a lot of legitimacy to that. I think there's also two more reasons that aren't necessarily expressed by the people they research. And I think these two, it's because they're kind of embarrassing. 
I think one of the reasons there's a wide group of people leaving church is we don't like getting involved in other people's lives anymore. It's messy. It's exhausting. People are irritating. So I'm done. And I think the second reason is consumerism, it, it really is a part of us. What consumerism does, it's always looking for the best option. Especially on the weekends, there's so much to do. So many more exciting options than, you know, being stuck in church on Sunday or go to a home fellowship group. There's more exciting things to do. They say the primary ages of the Duns are people from the ages 35 and younger, mostly. And the trend will keep increasing because traditional habits are going, being laid by the wayside. What are traditional habits? Going to church, being with family, having dinner, lunch, dinners with families. Now they're being replaced by sports, big television shows, and doing fun things with friends. But in our next reading here in Luke, we're going to find a different world than the world we live in today. Really, there's a different mindset where tradition, <clears throat> community, respect for elders, and authority was the norm. It mattered, actually. We're going to also find a 12-year-old boy named Jesus who thrived in this culture. He thrived in it. This is really the only substantial information we have about Jesus being a, uh, in his younger years. There's some legends that Jesus as a boy would take clay and blow on it and birds would fly. But the New Testament doesn't give us any stories like that. This is really the only story we have of Jesus from the time he was born to 30 years of age where he's baptized for his public ministry. So it's really called the silent years of Christ. And this is a little but they'd say little peek into what he was like as a boy, as a teenager, as a young adult. The title of this is The Boy Wonder, just kind of banking on this, uh, you know, the Batman theme, but the title of this is The Boy Wonder because he's amazing. Jesus is always amazing. We're going to start in verse 39, chapter 2. When they had performed everything, meaning Jesus' family, Joseph and Mary, when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned into Galilee to their own town of Nazareth. And the child grew, Jesus is the child, and the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it, but supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey, but then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. All who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. 
And he said to them, why are you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? They did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. So that's the story of Jesus as a 12-year-old boy. I want you to enter into the story. Because when we look into there's much to learn and a lot to explore. So let's begin by joining the action by, I have here for you a map of Israel. So it says in verse 41, his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. The Passover wasn't just the day of the Passover, it was a whole week. It's called the Week of Unleavened Bread. It was a long event. It took five days of travel through some incredibly difficult terrain. So you start up in Nazareth, and you go through the grassy lands, and you go down to the Jordan Valley, all the way by the Dead Sea. Jericho is right there in the corner of the Dead Sea, and up to the Rocky Mountains to Jerusalem. It's a five-day trip by foot. So they usually would go with a caravan, is what most scholars would say. Families in the town of Nazareth would get together, and they'd all travel together down the Jordan Valley. Take about three days to get to Jericho. They'd rest a little bit. And then from Jericho up to Jerusalem, it goes from 800 feet below sea level up to 2,500 above in Jerusalem in just a 25-mile span through some of the most treacherous desert wasteland you've seen. The roadway was very, uh, it was very famous. In Arabic, it's called El Ed Dam, which means a scent of blood or a scent of the red, for two reasons, because the rock itself was a red rock, but also it was a great place for bandits to jump caravans. So a lot of blood was shed along that way. It's a dangerous road. Harsh countryside, very hot. Then when the family finally arrived on the fifth day in Jerusalem, they would usually stay with relatives or friends for a week of unleavened bread ceremonies where they go to the temple, they'd offer sacrifices. They would go to a local synagogue worshiping and staying with loved ones. My first thing is, could you imagine making this trip every single year as a family? It's like spring break week for many people. Get excited about it. But it's much more extreme and a lot more dangerous. I'm sure my wife would pack a lot of Band-Aids, trail mix. And if we had access, probably a gun. But they didn't have guns back there, so you brought a heavy staff. Probably some bug repellent, but not in the desert. Down the Jordan Valley, some bad mosquitoes. But they would take five days a year traveling there, then five days back, but then a whole week in Jerusalem. That's a long time. I have one observation. Jesus was raised, it said he went there every year. He was raised with some very committed and faithful parents. Some Jewish scholars taught that the early pilgrimage was only required from the males in the house, but apparently Jesus' whole family, including his mother and sisters, also went. So I would say the things of God were priority to the family Jesus was raised in. 
My question is, are they to yours? Because I find that good parenting, good parenting makes God a priority. And the way you can measure priority is by sacrifice. What, what costs you the most means the most to you. What costs you the most means the most to you. And this must have cost a lot of time to go there every, every year. Parents now today are really spending an awful lot of time and they're in a complete frenzy for our kids to be proficient in sports and extracurricular, how do you say that, curricular activities. It's a hard word to say five times fast, Carol, try that. We sell the farm to help our children succeed in popular arenas, but having them learn about God and taking time out for God it's usually for those of us who have time left over after we've done all the extracurricular. One thing as a family we've tried to do, and we're not that good at it because we get sucked into, there's a lot of pressure to be accepted and to do what everybody else is doing. But we've tried to give compensatory time to God. What compensatory time means, if we send our child to a sports camp, we try to send our child also to a snow camp, mission trip in the summer, if we send our kids to weekly practices, we try to send our kids to weekly Bible studies. Compensatory time. I think the reason so many of our youth are done, that donors are such a, it's a big movement, is because they have not learned to sacrifice from their mom and dad, making those big sacrifices. The statistics bear this out. Children who stay with God have been raised in a home where God is priority. Specifically, if you really want to get into the details, where the father treats God with significance, then the kids usually follow. Is this true in your home? That's just a good question to ask. Do you do compensatory time? What does most of your money and your children go to? So let's continue with the story because it gets intense. It ramps up. Look at verses 43 to 46. And when the feast was ended, the Passover feast, so there for a whole week, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents didn't know it. Why didn't they know it? Because of caravans. Most people would say the dads and the boys, the older boys would stay behind to make sure all of the mules, the luggage, and the women and children would go first. So maybe Jesus was 12. Maybe Joseph thought Mary had him, or maybe Mary thought Joseph had him. Whether the way, they um, said the parents didn't know he stayed behind. Verse 44. But supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey, but then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. I mean, could you imagine being Mary? Three days he was lost, and they did not find him. Have you ever lost a child like in a big store when he's small? I left the kid behind at snow camp one time. I'll, the parents are kind of upset. They're a little upset. Last week I lost my dog for an hour. Drove me crazy. Did he get hit by a car? Did he get stolen? What if his foot got caught in one of Pastor Derek's coyote traps? See? 
What if that black bear spotted in Berrien County ate him? Those thoughts just shoot through your mind. I am sure, could you imagine what Mary's thinking about Jesus, especially on that road from Jericho up to Jerusalem? Did he get caught by bandits? Did he get traded like Joseph was? Thrown into a cistern and traded some Arab trader? Where, where's Jesus? So you know his mother was a little distraught. And when we get in the middle of verse 46, it says, they found him. Where was he? Well, they found him in the temple. Found him in the temple. What was he doing? Sitting. He was sitting, just hanging out. Why do you, what? Jesus. It reads, he was among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. But his mom was still ticked, regardless if he's talking to all of these scholars. Look at verse 48. When his parents saw him, they were astonished. His mother said, son. Why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. We are mad, is what she's saying. We're going to kill you when you get home, boy. Grounded for 17 years. I think they grounded him for 18 years. He wasn't in ministry until he's 30. She had every right to be ticked. Didn't Jesus even care about how his parents felt? Didn't he know they might have considered him dead? Apparently not. In fact, he turns the tables on his parents and sort of gets a little upset with them. Look at verse 49. He says, why were you looking for me? <laughs> What's the big deal? Did you not know I'm, I'm to be in my father's house? They didn't understand this at all. I wouldn't have either, actually. It says in verse 50, and they did not understand the saying which he spoke to them. So just think a second. What is a 12-year-old boy doing? Because as me, if I was a 12-year-old boy, I'd be clinging to my dad if I knew we would be heading back home. What, what, what was he doing? He's engaged in the teaching of old religious men, and he was sparring with them on matters of law and doctrine. What 12-year-old what boy does this? I mean, really cares about the things of God. He's got plenty of time, doesn't he? Doesn't he have plenty of time to worry about the things of God? At least till he's 30. It's time to play now. And not only that, he was pretty smart. It says uh, in verse 47, and all who heard him were amazed at his answers. They were amazed. And so to me, for a young kid, this is shocking. Instead of finding the temple in Jerusalem as a place of dead and stuffy religion full of old men arguing nonsense. He calls this place made of stone in a thousand years of traditions his father's home. It's where my father's home is. It's so different than the way we look at church or even we, I think we even cause our kids, yeah, you just got to suffer through, you got to come to church, kids, as if it's, it's a burden to be with the people of God. One writer said about this statement, his father's house, he says the notion of household in the Greco-Roman culture was not only a designation of place, but also of authority. Jesus is in the temple, the locus of God's presence, but he is there under divine compulsion, engaged in teaching. The point is that he must align himself with God's purpose, even if this appears to compromise his relationship with his parents. So in other words, God's will and purpose mattered more to Jesus 
than pleasing his earthly parents. God's will and purpose mattered more to Jesus than fly fishing in the Sea of Galilee. God's will and purpose mattered more to Jesus than feeling left behind while the rest of the world is having fun. Why? Because the Father is his primary allegiance. It should be ours as well. If you are a parent and your children would rather do God's will than yours, you're doing something right. You're doing something right because we have been made for Him. Our children have been made for Him not to fulfill our dreams and wants. I remember I, in some ways, remember I had a, my best friend, his dad never played sports. And because his dad never played sports, he was at every game, every practice. He would be the one yelling at the refs. He'd be the one thrown out of the games yelling at the refs. I remember one time my dad drove me home and said, well, I, I know him. He just wishes that he could have the same opportunity as his dad. I said, why don't you yell at my refs, dad? He goes, because I had my chance. As if the kids are living through them. No, your kids are God's kids. They aren't living your dreams. They are fulfilling their God's will. One time I took a trip to Moody. Second year I was here as a youth pastor. I brought about 10 teens with me to visit classes, to talk to teachers, to just consider the possibilities of maybe a full-time ministry. And one kid was excited. I got to tell you, he was excited. He was a senior and he was deciding to not go to just continue to work, he decided to possibly hand in a resume or an application to Moody. He came home and he told his dad and his dad shut it down, came to my house and said, what kind of stuff are you feeding my son? We're done here. And they left. Have you ever tried to follow God at risk of relationship with your family and friends? How about following God at odds to a good time? a sport, or even misunderstanding in this money-obsessed world. It's tough. But I personally believe there will be a moment for every true believer when God, not only is he, he your father, but there's going to a question of allegiance. Do I follow my father or do I follow other people? Who do I follow? For Jesus, his opinion, God's opinion matters more than anything else. Let's get back to the narrative. Third, third part of this is the long walk home. So after three days, it's figured that the first day was heading back up Jericho, up to Jerusalem. That's day one. Day two is looking for him. Day three is finally finding him in the temple. So after three days, they find Jesus. And then when they head back home on the long walk, it's another five-day journey. Verse 51 says, and he went down with them. And why it says down is Jerusalem is up in the mountains. They go down to Jericho and down to Nazareth. So he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. Oh, that's a bad word. So I'll bet this walk home for Jesus, his five-day walk, was not the funnest. His mom probably gave him that how could you speech. The first three days, and his dad probably gave him the silent treatment the last two days. Jesus could have played the Son of God, 
God card. It's a good trump card explaining how he's so much more above them, smarter than them, they just don't, they just don't have a clue what he's about. As many teens in America do towards their clueless parents. But it says he went home and he continued from that time, and the NIV says to obey, and the ESV says to be submissive. This Greek word means to voluntarily place yourself under authority. Voluntarily place yourself under authority. And some question, how, how long was he submissive? His public ministry wasn't till 18 more years. Was it 18 years? Was it just another five years? They don't know, but the key is he went home. And he enjoyed it. And I'll show you why in a second. To me, this is an amazing example for all of us. The smartest person in the world submitted to those who are clearly less intelligent and aware of his purpose. People don't do this. If we think we are smarter than others, we want to lead, teach, and rule, or we just leave. We just exit. Because everybody else back that I left, they're Neanderthals. They're just not as smart as I am. We pour out contempt on those who are beneath us, and this is really prevalent in college kids who come back home. I learned a lot from my college professors and ethics and philosophy, so mom and dad, you keep learning from that Baptist pastor. Eh, not too smart. They have become mockers of those who are older and seem out of it. It's just how our culture is. It's a youth culture, and older people are to be mocked. But not for Jesus. He put himself under. And because he's willing to obey both God and his parents, it says in verse 52, to me this is an amazing statement, and Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and favor with God and in favor with man. It's so unlike the current Christian culture we live in. The done generation, instead of loving people and even coming underneath some of the authority structures, which I'll be honest with you, some of them are repressive. They really are. Some pastors think they really have a right to dictate. And it's wrong, absolutely. But try to change it. Don't just forever leave and go fishing. So instead of loving people they are frustrated with, they simply quit. Jesus, however, humbled himself, and in his humility, he lived a very consistent life of going to the synagogue, obeying his parents, and learning to love those in his community of Nazareth. People he was infinitely smarter than. You've got to realize he's infinitely smarter than all of them. But he stayed. Jared and I were talking about there's a new phrase called leaning, leaning into or out of. The duns are the kind of people, because if they get irritated or they don't like something, they lean out of. That means they disinvest, they don't care. Leaning into means you enter into. Jesus was always leaning into community. With people in Nazareth, with his parents, with neighbors. He wasn't leaning out of being smug and just better. I have a, I'll just finish, finish with this assessment. I'm just trying to be honest. We started off by saying people now are quick to quit being part of a community because they don't like to be underneath or submit to rules or even play politics. A lot of people say, I'm not going to be a fake. I'm not going to play politics with stupid people. What does playing politics mean? 
Does it mean being kind? Does it mean being nice to people? Forgiving each other? I'm just going to be harsh. I'm just going to let people have it. What does playing politics mean? It means you just love people. Jesus grew in favor with little people because he's humble. He served. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love keeps no record of wrongs. Second assessment, we said people these days don't like stifling tradition. That apparently Jesus looked through the stifling tradition because he knew he could find the teachings of his father through these old rabbis in the synagogue. This is an amazing book. And sometimes it's not presented with any kind of eloquence or excitement, but it is the very word of God given to us. That God himself longs to communicate with you, and this is one of the prime ways he does that. Another observation, people today don't go to church necessarily because it's the least attractive of available options. However, Jesus and his family traveled five days to go to the temple where all they did is offer sacrifices, prayers, and hang out with family. That's sort of boring. Why did they do it? Because God's customs, culture, desires mattered. When people choose to quit, they no longer have influence. When people isolate, they have no chance to learn from others in humility. I think one of the biggest things we could ever learn is not intelligence, not argument, but humility. Humility. Learning to love people we think are less than us. Does God sure love me? And I'm kind of smaller than him. Kind of. When people simply do their own thing alone, like fishing, hiking, or staying home watching birds circle in silence on a Sunday morning, they are communicating that love, loving others is not that important. And I'll just say this, don't give me that bowl that getting a beer at the pub or hanging out at the golf course is real community. It is easy to love those who are just like you. It's easy to love those who are exactly like you. That is why God chose the church body to display his greatness. When we love those who are nothing like us and still care, we are communicating a completely different ethic. It's called unconditional love. We love because God first loved us while we were yet sinners. We were not attractive when Jesus first loved us. Unconditional love is displayed not in hanging with those just like me. It hangs in there with messy people. I just want to end with this question, thinking about, you know, the done generation. The question would be this. What would have happened if Jesus was done? What if he was getting ready to go to the cross? He said, you know what? These foolish people don't really even appreciate me. They're, they're yelling at me. They're spitting on me. You know what? I'm just going to rip myself off the cross, and I can fly. I'll fly to the Bahamas and just hang out on the beach. I'm done with this. What if Jesus said, you know, I don't like the year 30 A.D. I'll come back in the year 2016 where they'll have cruise ships, 
I'll join the PGA Tour because I can get a hole-in-one on every shot. And people will love it. They'll pay me a lot of money. It'll be a great life, really. You could be a good pitcher. I'll bet you Jesus has one mean curveball. I'll bet you he could hit a home run every time up. Now that, then he could really display his greatness. And everybody listen because he's have a 100% batting average. Nobody ever did that. This guy's got to be something else. No, he came to die, to love people that are made in his image, people that are spoiled and broken by sin because he knows when it comes to eternity, we're going to be so different than we are now. He sees our potential. He loves us as we are and who we will be someday. Do you see people like that? Or are you just done? I'm just done with this. Let's pray. Dear Father, we thank you for the example of Jesus. We thank you for his unique life. There's nobody like him. We thank you for his just incredible humility. It's incredible, his humility. Help us, Father, also to live with people in the same humility, the same willingness to offer unconditional love, even people we think are below us, beneath us, not as intelligent as us. Help us, Father, to love. Thank you for this day, and it's in Christ's name.